is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, I will be sharing some excerpts from an audiobook in progress. This is a follow-up to an episode from last month, where I also shared some audio excerpts. Over the summer of 2019, this last summer, I self-published a book. It is titled Hidden Experience, and the subtitle is 10 Years of Blogging, 2009 to 2019, A Personal Journey of Owls, Synchronicity, and UFO Contact. This book is a collection of my blog posts, and these were done during a time when I was when I was trying to come to terms with my contact events. And what I shared last month on The Unseen, and that was posted on October 23rd, was a collection of some shorter posts. Uh, just to give you an idea of the flavor of the book, for this episode, I will be sharing two full chapters, and each of these is made up of a handful of posts. Some of my experiences have been terribly complex, and I was writing and posting them on the blog as they were happening. Both these chapters are very good examples of this kind of frantic immediacy and and how challenging it is to try to document these multi-layered experiences. Now, this first excerpt you're going to hear is titled The Map, and it is from Chapter 6 in the book. And, and this one has a lot of visuals in it, and it's a little bit awkward for me to try to explain something visual using words. These images were posted on the blog, and they help a lot to tell the story. And what I have done is I have created a specific blog post just for this episode. Uh, There will be a link in the show notes, and you'll see a series of illustrations. And there's a caption under each of the images, and it will I think it will clarify a lot of things if you're listening to the audio of my voice trying to describe these things. Now, it's certainly not essential or anything that you, you actually look at the pictures, but you might find them helpful. A couple other things. This was my story, and some of the events were pretty powerful and distressing. And in the text, I swore a couple times. And in the audiobook, I swear a couple times too. For understandable reasons, I have snipped those swear words out. You can kind of perceive what I'm saying. I did it <laughs> I did it in a way that I think y'all know the words. But um these these audio things get put on YouTube and such like that. And there's just all there's a lot of reasons not to have any swearing in the in this podcast. Now, I will chime in between the two chapters and and give some input about the next chapter. Now, I said this before in the original posting. I'm going to say it again here. This I took this project on thinking it would be an easy book, right? Like I have a I have a blog and I have all these posts and I thought, well, I could just pick and choose carefully the the essential posts and put them into a book. I mean, they were already written, and it, and it should have been easy, and it wasn't. It was a very difficult project. And it was difficult because the, the format of the blog is a little bit frenetic and frantic, and it jumps around a little bit, and that works fine in a, in a blog where you put a few things out a week or a month. It didn't work so well in a book, so there was a lot of editing that took place. Now, you can read the original posts, and you can read the posts in the book side by side, and the changes that were made editorially were done to put things in a better order and to clear out a bunch of redundancies. So this way the reader will have a nice linear progression. There's a there's a true story that unfolds in this book. Okay, 
enough said about that. Here is the first of the audio excerpts. Please enjoy. Chapter 6 The Map It is sometimes an appropriate response to reality to go insane. Philip K. Dick Lots of Owls in Missouri Tuesday, March 9th, 2010 I am sharing two amazing owl photos in this post from southwest Missouri. One picture shows 28 short-eared owls all lined up on a fence. The other image, a little closer, shows half that, 14 owls all lined up on a fence. There's also a series of incredible videos from that same event. I've been in contact with the photographer, Tony Harrison. He posted a short clip on YouTube and wrote, this video doesn't do the sighting justice. There were probably more than 200 in the area. I received the link to these remarkable images from a fellow named Jim. He wrote a funny owl post on the Synchro Secrets site in 2009, and his story opened Chapter 5 in Stories from the Messengers. And he's also from Idaho. One more thing happened today. I received a copy of Mac Tony's book, the Crypto-Terrestrials. I wrote a short post announcing this amazing addition to the UFO literature and added it alongside these owl pictures. A Line on a Map Wednesday, March 10th, 2010 Sometimes I worry I have gone completely insane. And this post is an example of the out-and-out -out weirdness that leaves me utterly perplexed. Perhaps the easiest conclusion is that I'm just plain nuts. That said, this story is very interesting, at least to me. I have included a map image, and there is a yellow line on this map. And it's either magic or folly. First, I need to share some information that came from Anya Briggs. She told me something in a channeled session back in early November 2009. I recorded it, and Anya, or more correctly her guides, were giving me some health advice about alfalfa supplements when she abruptly changed the subject. She blurted out, Is there a Brian, Wyoming, or North Dakota? She seemed surprised and spelled it out, B-R-Y-O-N. Then she laughed and said, Brian, or something that sounds like that. Uh, this is confusing. Anya then went through some rather comical attempts to make some sense of what her guides were trying to tell her. Eventually, she narrowed it down to Brian, North Dakota. I googled it right then during our session, but I misspelled Brian as Byron. Only one thing came up. A map with a funny red pushpin in the middle of some farmer's field. I zoomed out and saw it was close to the Canadian border. I told her this, and she let out a big laugh. Yesterday, I created two blog posts. One featured a series of super cool owl photos. The second was about the arrival of Mac Tony's book in my mailbox. It seemed funny that both these posts came from Missouri. Mac Tony's lived in Kansas City, and those beautiful owl pictures were taken somewhere in the southwest part of the state.
I was curious if these two locations were close to each other. I used Google Maps to put a yellow pushpin marker on Kansas City. Then I put a blue pushpin marker on the road about halfway between the two small towns of Greenfield and Lockwood, Missouri. This was a guess, but it matched the written description in the article I had read with the pictures. I checked, and the two pushpins were 123 miles apart. Be aware, I take special notice when the number 123 shows up. What happened next was odd. It felt like I was on autopilot. I widened out the image on the Google Maps so I could see the red pushpin that marked Byron, North Dakota. Then I took a plastic ruler and set it against my computer monitor. And the three pushpins lined up exactly in a straight line. Now, this is where things get weird. And I need to say this. I knew they would line up even before I started. I knew it. And it freaked me out. But it wasn't their alignment that scared me. It was the absolute knowing ahead of time. I used the tools on Google Maps to create a yellow line. The process was tricky and it took a little time to figure out. There are 835 miles between the red pushpin noting Byron, North Dakota, and the blue pushpin down where the owl pictures were taken in Missouri. And this straight line cleanly bisects Kansas City. I typed Mac's address into Google Maps and zoomed in. His apartment was less than 500 feet from the yellow line, and that's remarkably close. But I was disappointed. I wanted that straight line to pass directly over his home. Again, don't ask me why. But before even starting, I had this knowing that I was going to find a 17-degree line. After the three points were all marked out, I set a protractor on my screen, and the line comes in at 17 degrees in relation to the latitude. The spark of the idea to lay that plastic ruler against my computer screen came from Stace Tussle. I was directly inspired by her straight line on a map of Kansas. Please watch this very curious video. It is linked on my website at this post. I met Stace in the Teton Crop Circle, the eighth post of this blog. I need to chime in. I need to add a verbal description of a visual map. You're listening to this on audio. I'm interrupting the actual reading of the text to try to explain this. So what I created back in 2010 was a Google map image, and there is a bright yellow line that begins in the south and goes upward at a slightly west angle, or slightly left, and there are three pushpins on the map. The first two are very close together. They're 123 miles apart. And this map goes all the way from Missouri up to the Canadian border. So there's a big stretch of land that's, that's showing here. And then the northernmost dot is the red pushpin of Byron, North Dakota, which came from the channeled session that I did with Anya in 2009, November of 2009. It is an arresting image for me because it brought up so much of this weirdness. Okay, thank you very much. Back to the audiobook reading. This is Mike, and I apologize. I am going to need to interrupt the flow of this chapter. We will be taking our very first break. For free Dreamlanders, you are going to hear a few commercials. For our paying members, we will be right back.
We are back on the unseen. And just before the break, you heard my voice reading my own text, and I had gotten to the end of a blog post. Now we're going to continue on with the same chapter, chapter six, from the book Hidden Experience. Please enjoy. Byron, North Dakota, and Anya Briggs. Friday, March 12th, 2010. The previous post was long and wordy, and I was trying to write about a channeled session with Anya Briggs and all its implications. My intent was to be as clear as possible, but this whole thing is very complicated. The psychic reading was recorded, so I posted an audio excerpt on the blog to help explain all this weird map stuff. The audio has some extra comments, but it's mostly Anya and I trying to make sense of the channeled messages. And it's funny. The recorded audio is linked on my blog, and you can find it by searching out the name of this post, Byron, North Dakota, and Anya Briggs. When Anya, or more correctly her guides, told me to visit Byron, North Dakota during our session back in early November, the whole thing seemed exciting. But it was also utterly strange. In the last few months, its importance has sort of faded away. But this line on the map pushed it right back into the forefront of something to pursue. Whatever was going on, Byron, North Dakota seemed to be a pivotal place in this conundrum. Here's some more weirdness. If you listen to the audio, here's the first thing that Anya asks. She says, Is there a Brian, Wyoming, or North Dakota? The words Byron and Brian got mixed up somewhere in the process. I have my paper notes from that session, and they clearly read Byron. So Anya said Brian, and I wrote down Byron. I typed Byron into Google as a way to search out what it might mean. So I was the one who made the curious switcheroo with the two letters. And this kind of spelling mix-up is totally common for me. When I searched the incorrect spelling, the little pushpin appeared in a lonely field. I pointed out this change to Anya in an email, and she replied, Well, spelling and hearing gets messed up in the translation sometimes. Odds are I heard the name wrong. Replace the Y with the R, and it's the same spot. I was telling you in North Dakota, so that's probably the same place they were referring to. I mean, you know this happens in channeling. It's not an exact science, so why are you busting my chops? The last few years have been mind-boggling, and it's left me totally distraught. I can wallow in the drama of that feeling, and it's like getting stuck in a tape loop. There's an urgency to all this, and it can be unbearable. Presently, I'm simply perplexed and curious. I suspect there will be a day when I make a pilgrimage to that lonely field in North Dakota. This map weirdness has swallowed me, but I still have no idea what Byron actually was. Until a few minutes ago, it was just a lonely pushpin in a farmer's field. It took some digging, but I eventually found out that Byron is one of 48 townships in Cavalier County, North Dakota. Google must have just plunked it there to mark the middle of some bureaucratic boundary. An hour after posting the text above. Okay, even more weirdness. I just received a note from an online acquaintance. 
telling me that there is also a Byron, Wyoming. The moment I read those words, I absolutely knew what was going to happen next. I used Google Maps and found the very little town of Byron, Wyoming, and connected it to Byron, North Dakota, with a blue line. Next, I stretched that straight line further west, and it passes right through my little cabin in Idaho, and I mean exactly. This is a big deal, and I need to explain it carefully. This new line on the map is 690 miles long, and the easternmost point is the red pushpin in Byron, North Dakota, and the westernmost point is my cabin in Idaho. This straight line passes right through the town of Byron, Wyoming, running over a parallel section of the Shoshone River, which is less than 800 feet from the main street. These three points line up in a perfectly straight line, culminating at my home. Here is the part that is so strange. I absolutely knew this was going to happen the moment I read there was a town in Wyoming called Byron. I absolutely knew it would point to my house, where I am sitting right now. I absolutely knew it about the other line, too. The fence with the 28 owls up to Byron, North Dakota. I knew this line would be very close to Mac Tony's apartment in Kansas City. Don't ask me what any of this means, but please believe me, I am not exaggerating. I knew it before it happened both times. It felt like the floor has dropped out from under me. I can't help but think that razor-sharp blue line is pointing directly at me. This whole thing has been spellbinding and rewarding. Believe me, it is still confusing, but in an exciting way, like the irresistible drama of a mystery novel. I showed the maps to Anya Briggs and explained my sense of absolute knowing. Here's what she said. That is freaky-deaky that the line goes straight through your home. Well, I guess it ain't over yet, bub. They came through strong just now. You are on quite the treasure hunt. I also put a red line across the bottom of the map to make a complete triangle. I scrutinized this new line for anything, and only one point seems significant. The line crossed through a city park in Wyoming, and this was the site of an emotional memorial for a young friend. Extra text added, March 13, 2010. Yesterday afternoon, I was working with Google Maps to fine-tune the long yellow line stretching down from the pushpin in Byron, North Dakota. I took my time, zooming in close, carefully positioning all the points. But the accuracy of the yellow line is dependent on the location of the owl photos. At present, I don't know precisely where they were, but I'm working on that. I set the yellow line over Mac's apartment and let it run 123 miles southeast. The southern point of the line ends up roughly in the area described in the article with the owl pictures, 
about halfway between the towns of Greenfield and Lockwood, Missouri. My phone rang during this compulsive work. It was Mac Tony's mother, calling to thank me for the illustrations in his book. We had a very touching conversation, and she shared a lot with me about her son. We spoke for over an hour, and I was absolutely filled with gratitude. Update on the yellow line on the map. Friday, March 26, 2010. I just received a paper letter from Fair and Fight, who was with Tony Harrison when he took those beautiful owl photographs in Missouri. Fair and wrote, Yes, it was amazing. I have seen many things in my life, but the owls were one of the most wonderful. There would have been more pictures, but I didn't realize what I was looking at until I had passed them. Farron sent me a map with the exact location of the owl sightings. It was approximately four miles north of the very small town of Lockwood, Missouri. I could see the farmer's fence in the Google Maps satellite imagery, and this was about two miles west of where I had assumed it was after seeing the owl photos. I moved the southern end of the yellow line to the exact site of the owls, and this changed the razor-sharp precision noted in an earlier posting. The line no longer runs through Max apartment in Kansas City. It's now a little less than two miles to the west. That's still pretty close, but not as precise as the previous image. The owls were seen near an area noted on the map as Gray's Valley. These weren't great gray owls, but were short-eared owls. Uh, they weren't gray aliens either. Mysterious Star Map Friday, April 9th, 2010 While in the obsessive throes of this map weirdness, my cat knocked a full cup of coffee off my desk and it fell on the floor with a messy splash. I looked over the edge of my desk and saw that the coffee had splattered a bunch of speckles on a page of map notes I had left on the floor. My first reaction was, Wow, this looks like a constellation. Is this a star map? There was something so captivating about this new image, and I thought it might have been an image of the Pleiades. And I spent a lot of time trying to find some correlation to the coffee polka dots on that paper and the Pleiades. The dots certainly resemble the constellation, but they don't quite match. Yet I wanted them to. After a while, I recognized my own neediness and realized this was a little bit fanatical, even for me. Text added, December 2018. I wrote something in the midst of all the map weirdness back in 2010. I wrote, As I dig into this, I'm using Google Maps the way a mystic might use a deck of tarot cards. And I'm trying not to second-guess the outcome of the information. At that point, Google Maps was somewhat simple, yet slightly inaccurate. The maps were all set up as a sort of expanded Mercator projection. Wyoming, for example, was a perfect rectangle. But our planet is round, so putting a perfectly straight line on a map isn't really possible especially over long distances. Presently, Google Maps has been updated, and it's much more sophisticated. If you zoom out from an image, 
you'll eventually see a globe floating in space. I have recently gone back in and rechecked the lines of the giant triangle that I created back in 2010. And presently, the alignments are still close, but they are no longer perfect. Three Days in the Prior Mountains December 2018 There is a story from the summer of 2012, and it's an important part of the overall narrative of the giant triangle on this map. I never posted anything about it in the blog back then, which surprises me, so I have written it up for this book and added it here. At some point amidst the flurry of these posts, I received a note from a reader who noticed something from the November 2009 channeled session with Anya Briggs. The fellow had listened carefully to the audio link on my site and pointed out some specific details. Anya had said some interesting things. I will now read an excerpt from that 2009 channeled session. Anya said, They are saying Brian. A town called Bryan. Are you close to the border of Wyoming? They're saying it's over the border in Wyoming. Bryan, Wyoming. They are saying Bryan. They are looking at landmass. They are showing me this butte. Okay? I don't know why they are saying butte. Okay, it's a physical butte. It's not butte, Montana we are talking about. They are saying if you go 15 miles outside of Wyoming, near the North Dakota border... On the left side of the bank of the hill, you're going to find us. That's one of our hotspots. They are saying 10 to 15 miles north of there. You have to fudge with this a little bit. This is a test for you. And they are laughing. The Canadian border is about 15 miles north of the pushpin for prior North Dakota. I had been focused on this site, but it didn't really lead to anything. I'm referring again to the email I received from the reader of my blog. The message pointed out that the Montana border is 15 miles north of Pryor, Wyoming, and rising from the plains, 15 miles north of that border, are the Pryor Mountains. Anya had said, it's a physical butte, and this matches the terrain. She also said, you're going to find us there. For the Crow Nation, the Prior Mountains are the traditional home of the little people. When I read this, I knew I would go there someday. I have spent years camping in this part of the West, and I have talked with a few folks who have said they have seen the little people. One friend told me he had seen a tiny brown-skinned person. It was standing motionless on the trail, and no taller than 16 inches. The expression on this little person was like, oops, busted. He then smiled and waved. My friend said he was close enough to see the stitching on its clothes. They stared at each other for over a minute. Then it stepped off the trail and disappeared into the bushes. The little people are said to possess magical powers, and some of the lore is frightening yet other aspects are benevolent. In August of 2012, I went into the Prior Mountains alone and camped for two nights. 
This is a small mountain range, partially within the boundary of the Crow Indian Reservation. The terrain is used for cattle grazing, and it's also home to a protected herd of free-roaming horses. Before the trip, I asked around about these mountains, and I realized it isn't really a destination for hiking. But the one thing I heard from everyone was that I should make an offering while visiting there, and they all said I should leave tobacco for the little people. I took an old bandana, cut it into little sections, filled each with pipe tobacco, and tied them in tiny pouches with cotton string. I carried eight of these into the mountains and left them as offerings. It was a beautiful six-hour drive from my cabin in Idaho to the Priors. The route took me across the heart of Yellowstone National Park, and my time in the car was a kind of meditative preparation. I went to the Pryor Mountains with the direct intention of having a contact experience. I said it out loud multiple times, in the car, and in the backcountry. I wanted a flying saucer to land so an alien could step out and tell me why all these fucked up things have been happening in my life. But that didn't happen. It was late summer, and the terrain was dusty and dry. I needed to be near water, so I camped the first night low in a canyon bottom. It was a tangled mess of bushes and cottonwoods, and I needed to search around in the dark to find a flat spot to sleep. Before going to bed, I made my way into the woods to find a place to hang my food to keep it safe from bears. I walked slowly in and around the bushes and fallen trees, and I was suddenly confronted by a tiny owl. It was a saw-wet owl, barely six inches tall, staring at me in the glow of my headlamp. It was calmly perched on a branch at about my chest height and close enough to touch. I stood there amazed at its cuteness. It sat there wide-eyed. Then it would jump up and pluck little moths out of the air between us. They had been attracted to the light of my headlamp. And this happened a couple times. It was an odd motion. It would jump up and then snap back. It looked like it was attached to the branch by a rubber band. After about a minute, it flew off. This was as close as I had ever been to an owl in the wild, and it was absolutely magical. I spent the following days walking around without much of a goal. I didn't have an objective, like a big summit or an ambitious loop. I just ambled around without worrying too much about the map. There weren't any trails, but once I got above treeline, the open travel was easy. It was terrain I love. Sagebrush and open vistas looking out over a magnificent empty part of the West. As I walked, I looked for places to set the tobacco pouches as an offering to the little people. I would tuck them in a little hollow knob in a tree or on a tiny shelf on a rock. I spoke aloud each time I did this, declaring that I was a visitor. I appreciated the terrain, and I was grateful. On the afternoon of the third day, I walked back to my car and drove home. My intention for my time in the mountains was to meet an alien, but instead I had a face-to-face, close-up encounter with an adorable little owl. Dream Image with a Raven Wednesday, August twenty-second, 2012 
I had a remarkably vivid dream, just before waking on the morning of August 18th. I clearly saw a poster, and I'm pretty sure it stated, follow your heart. But it might have said, follow your heart chakra. This beautiful image came the morning after I had returned from a three-day trip to the prior mountains of southern Montana. This is a sacred place for the Crow Nation. I went there because I was drawn by a deep need and a storm of synchronicities. I was there to get a message of some sort. And except for acute owl sighting, nothing much happened. The only thing I got was this nicely art-directed dream image. It had a background of dark yellow with upper and lower case Helvetica in bold white letters. These were over the image of the raven. I am extremely clear on this because during the dream I was able to zoom in and carefully study the layout. I was delighted because it so beautifully captured the clean graphic style of the 1970s, an era of art direction that is dear to my heart. There is a lot of information online about the totem or spirit meaning of ravens. Here is a short list of the raven's lore. Rebirth without fear. The ability to tear down what needs to be rebuilt. The ability to find light in the darkness. The courage of self-reflection. One more thing. This essay was posted on my 50th birthday. Text added, December 2018. This simple image of a raven has everything to do with the map and the giant triangle across the middle of the country. It was from this map and all the weird experiences connected to it that I ended up in the Prior Mountains, the home of little owls, and little people. I see this golden poster as the culmination of the map and all its frenetic clues. I had been confronted with something grand, and I was seeking an equally grand answer. I am struck by the beauty and simplicity of the dream image and the message, follow your heart. These are words to live by. And that concludes Chapter 6. Right now, we are going to have to take our second break. For free Dreamlanders, you're going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on the unseen. Just before the break, you heard my voice, and I concluded reading Chapter 6. Now we're going to jump ahead to Chapter 8 in the book Hidden Experience. And like the previous chapter, this was written in real time. These blog posts were written pretty much as they were happening. There, there wasn't much delay between the events themselves and my fingers on the keyboard. For the previous chapter you just heard and this chapter coming up, and, and there was a, a very real sense of stress when I was writing these events as they were taking place. And, I mean, it's right there in the text. And you can hear it in my voice because, well, I, I was trying to to recreate the, the mood of the moment. 
of not only the writing of it, but the actual experience. Like I didn't shy away from, from really going for it at a few points in this audio reading. Now, the previous chapter about the map, that was, that was pretty stressful for me. But this next one, this next one really shook me up. For, uh, and you'll understand why. I mean, it would really, really shook me up. And there's two things happening in a way because not only was I, was I in shock in a way, but I was also genuinely in awe of the power of what was unfolding and 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 there's this odd mix and and I don't really know if I realized that until years later reviewing what I had written and then and then having to speak those words okay here we go one more full chapter please enjoy chapter 8 the night in the tent The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. H.P. Lovecraft Irrational Fear Inside Our Tent Thursday, May 20th, 2010 I've just returned home after spending two beautiful weeks in the Four Corners area. My close friend Natasha flew in from Germany specifically to explore and camp in this amazing part of the West. Something happened during our trip, and neither of us has any idea as to what it might have been. Natasha is here with me in my home and has been adding details as I write. We are trying to describe the experience and make this post as accurate as we can. On Thursday, May 13th, it felt like our long road trip was winding down, and we started home to Idaho. We were driving north after leaving Mesa Verde, and I noticed the brakes on my car were responding poorly. We went into a small auto shop in Cortez, Colorado. After putting my Subaru up on the lift, the mechanic told us, I can't let you leave town, or you'll die. That took me by surprise, and I asked him to explain. He said he could be held liable if he let us leave the shop with broken brakes. They needed to order parts, but they wouldn't arrive for five days. We rented a cheap car and figured we'd make the best of it. Later that afternoon, after renting the car, Natasha and I went to a coffee shop and asked our very nice server, who was wearing a very groovy hippie dress, if she knew of any spots to camp near Cortez. She said there was open camping on BLM land outside of Dolores, the next town east. She gave us directions, and after a short drive, we were in a lovely area of tall trees and sagebrush. We found a secluded spot a short ways off the Forest Service Road, complete with an old campfire ring and broken beer bottles, perfect for our one-night camping needs. We set up our tent then headed back into the town of Dolores and ate pizza at a very cute local brewery. Our table was right next to the window and looked out on a quiet corner of this very small town. During dinner, Natasha was quite emotional and cried a little bit. She's here with me now, explaining that she was in some sort of crisis. She was feeling sad but didn't know the source of these emotions. After eating our pizza, we went back to the campsite and climbed into our small tent. 
It seems like we both fell asleep quickly, and this is where things get strange. I was suddenly jolted awake. Natasha had let out a short shriek, and I sat bolt upright and screamed with an intensity that might be impossible to describe. I was screaming in fear, sure enough, but it was also a primal outburst of defense. Now, I have slept in the mountains for decades and have dealt with some scary stuff in the dark, but this was different. If a grizzly bear had ripped through the tent and put its jaws around my throat, I would have not been as scared as I was in that moment. I have never in my life been frightened in a way that could come close to those moments in the tent. I have since described this as synthetic fear. This is the only way to articulate the absolute irrational intensity. It felt as if my very soul was at the precipice of being extinguished. I switched on my headlamp, held it in my hand, and asked Natasha what happened. I actually had the wherewithal to say, Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Don't think. Just tell me what happened. She said almost nothing, simply whispering, I saw a face. Natasha later explained that she felt blocked, like it was impossible to tell me what she had actually seen. She is trying now to articulate her feelings, that perhaps she was still lingering in some other realm where time had a different meaning. She was partially somewhere else, while I was firmly in this time reality, and it created some kind of disconnect between us. Moments after our screaming session, I stammered to Natasha in a voice on the verge of panic. Look, if we need to, we can just leave right now. We can leave the tent set up, and we can drive to town, and we can get a hotel room. We can do that if we need to. I was freaked out, and it came out in my voice. This is something I would never say under any normal circumstance. Then she asked me, do you believe in evil ghosts? I thought carefully and replied, No. My response was less out of honesty and more an attempt to keep the mood from getting any scarier. At some point I looked at my watch and saw it was only 11.40 p.m. My reaction was, Oh, shit. It is still so early and we'll have to worry about this scary stuff for the rest of the night. I had one arm over Natasha as we lay there in silence. We must have spoken a little, but I can't remember anything. I know my heart was pounding, and I felt trapped in a spiral of impending doom. I lay there thinking, this is fucking terrifying. This is insane. How could I ever camp out here? How could I ask for this kind of fucking shit? My mind was spiraling out of control. I ended up chanting a repetitive mantra in my head, love and light, love and light, love and light, love and light, over and over and over and over. This might sound corny, but I really meant it. At one point, I put my arm back in my own sleeping bag and promptly fell asleep. I have to say this seems awfully weird as I write this, that I could slip back into sleep after being so freaking terrified. It seems impossible that we could both simply doze off again. Then I had what might have been a dream. I'm not sure, but it feels like it happened moments after falling asleep. It was weirdly vivid, without any dream-like distortion, and very accurate to the interior of the tent. I'll add this dream was not scary in the least. It was void of any emotion, good or bad. From where I was laying in the tent, I saw a big, round mandala figure up and to my left. 
It was situated in a very specific point in the tent, just above Natasha's feet. It was a simple circle with a lone dot in the center. What I saw was flat and about the size of a large pizza pan. My instant impression was that it looked like the blurry cataract image in my right eye. This is strange because it didn't look anything like that, and I will talk more about this shortly. Then I was floating up off the floor of the tent. The elevator-up sensation of slowly rising felt strangely familiar. I thought to myself, I need to remember this, I need to remember this, I need to remember this. I should have bumped into the roof of the tent, but that didn't happen. Instead, it felt like I smoothly dissolved from one scene to another. The environment of the tent changed to a backdrop of white light. I thought, am I on a table? Am I on a table? Am I on a table? I didn't understand where I was. It was a mysterious realm, surrounded by a uniform white glow. Was I on my back? Was I upright? Then I heard Natasha say, Mike, you're floating. Hearing her, I was immediately sucked back into the tent, and the dream abruptly ended. I feel pretty strongly that she never actually said this, but I clearly remember hearing her German accent in the dream state. Her words pulled me back down into the sleeping bag, and I was deeply asleep. This is exactly my memory, but I don't think it really happened the way I've just described it. I slept soundly the rest of the night, and that's unusual. It's normal for me to wake a little bit and drift in and out, but that didn't happen. The next morning, we immediately began to talk about the events of the night, and more details emerged. While still in our sleeping bags, I asked Natasha what she saw that made her scream. She explained that she saw a face within a circle. I asked her to describe it, and she couldn't. I pressed her for more details, and she said, I can't say, but the only thing that seems to match is that drawing you did of the face in the circle from your blog. She described my own impressions of the round mandala I had seen hovering in the tent, and this was very curious because I hadn't yet told her anything about my dream. As I said earlier, all I had seen was a floating circle, but it reminded me of the image within my right eye. I asked her where she had seen the face, because the night before I had assumed it was directly above her, but she pointed instead to the wall of the tent, just up and to the left of her feet, exactly where I had seen the glowing mandala. This scared me, because she had no idea what I had seen. There is more on this imagery in the earlier post from October of 2009, titled, The Face in My Eye. I got out of the tent, and the world seemed perfectly normal. The sun was shining, and the birds were singing. I walked around the campsite, fully expecting to find a burn mark in the grass where a flying saucer had landed. But I found nothing. What actually might have happened is difficult to say, but it was something far beyond a jolt of surprise when Natasha woke me with her short scream. I cannot dismiss the power of the fear that overcame both of us. 
but this feeling of terror was entirely different than any emotion I've ever experienced. It was amplified in a way that seems extraordinary, and I've wondered if this irrational fear was somehow projected into us from an outside source. What's even more bizarre is the extremely vivid nature of my dream and the matching details described by Natasha. Everything about this event has left me unnerved. There were a few comments worth noting below this post. The first was from Natasha. She wrote, What would interest me most is, is there anyone out there who has had any kind of experience where she or he felt this irrational fear? This is not the first time where it happened to me, but the first time where I had it in a way with direct confirmation. And I'll tell you, I am more surprised that Mike was freaking out like this. This is not how I know him. Very curious stuff. So although Mike mentions his dream, for me, there was no dream. It was real, like the fingers on my keyboard right now. I wonder if our mind plays tricks with us and makes us believe that we are dreaming because then some things might be easier to take. There was also an interesting comment from fellow blogger and experiencer Lucretia Hart. She shared something that happened on the night of May 13th, the same night as our scary experience in the tent. Lucretia wrote, That's the night! I totally felt out of the blue like I needed to talk to you. It's not like me, and yet I couldn't stop thinking about you, and I needed to talk to you that night. It would have been about midnight. One in the morning for you, I think. My bizarre need to contact you that particular night is an odd synchronicity for sure. I am not prone to up and calling people late at night. Yet I felt compelled. Huh. Over the years, Lucretia and I have talked on the phone a lot, but never at night. She described the urgent need to call me so late as something decidedly unusual. Her anxiety lines up to the moment of something that sure seems like UFO contact. She feels there must have been some sort of telepathic link between us that created such a powerful compulsion. I agree. The same thing happened less than three years later, on March 10th, 2013. Lucretia woke up in the middle of the night with a similar need to call me. This was the night of another powerful experience in the desert southwest. Both of these events showed up in a psychic vision. They were on two ends of a straight line, with a third, equally bizarre experience in the middle. All three points lined up on a map, and this transformative story will be told later in a post titled, My Confirmation Event. Sweat Lodge and a Curious Scratch Saturday, July 3rd 2010. After our intense night in the tent, Natasha and I drove our rent-a-car back to the groovy coffee shop in Cortez. I used my little flip phone and called Miriam Delicato, a contactee who has spent a lot of time in this part of the Southwest. I explained that we were stuck down here and asked her what we should do, and she told us we needed to go to Canyon de Chez in Arizona and do a sweat lodge ceremony with a Navajo man at one of the campgrounds. We topped off our coffee and started driving. 
Canyon de Chelly is one of the most magical places on earth. It is entirely on Navajo land, so entering the canyon bottom requires a local guide. We spent the afternoon with wet feet in the cold, muddy Chinlin Creek with a wonderful guide named Francine. Afterwards, we went to the campground and found Howard, the man who would lead the ceremony. We were all set up to have the sweat lodge the next morning, along with a few other people at the campground. I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. It felt like I was proceeding without intention. It was more like I was being pulled towards the sweat lodge rather than seeking it. At some point that day, I took my shirt off and found a curious scratch that ran from my left shoulder down to my belly button. I had been in the tent in Dolores, Colorado that morning, so this would have been the first time I took my shirt off since the scary events the previous night. At first glance, it didn't really seem that unusual. It was a thin little scratch, as if a single cat claw or rose thorn had run across my skin. But when you looked at it very closely, it wasn't a scratch at all. Instead, it seemed like a sort of rash. If you looked at it closely, it was a bumpy length of tiny blisters in a long straight line. These were little bubbles of yellowish fluid right on the surface of my skin, and each little blister was less than a millimeter wide. These tiny bumps created a dotted line across my skin. Now, I'm colorblind, and even I could see the thin red line. It looked like an allergic reaction, as if someone had taken a fine point pen full of poison ivy ink and drawn a straight line about 18 inches long down my chest. It was weird, and I've never seen anything like it. It didn't itch or hurt, but it was certainly curious. It healed up quickly and cleanly over the next few days. Did I get this scratch the previous night in the tent in Dolores? And was it associated with that feeling of terror? At the time, both Natasha and I asked the same thing, yet we quickly dismissed those thoughts. It might have come from some desert cactus, but I didn't do anything the previous few days with my shirt off, and I have no memory of getting scratched by any plants or coming in contact with poison oak, and that's a common tree in the area that can produce a rash. About a week later, I took a shower, and it all washed off. After it was gone, Natasha and I each had the same reaction. Why didn't we take a picture? We both investigate UFO events, but it never crossed our minds to get a photo until after it was gone. I'm still wondering how I got that scratch, and I think it must have happened that creepy night in the tent. When I crawled into the sweat lodge, I wore a bathing suit, and my bare chest displayed that long red scratch. There were eight of us in the dark, cramped shelter, with a pit in the center for the very hot rocks. Howard led a really impressive ceremony. It was mystical and at the same time playful. I felt rooted in my own world and simultaneously connected with something beautiful and ancient. The overriding theme was to surrender to the heat. There were four separate sessions within the dark lodge, one for each of the four cardinal directions, with each one getting progressively hotter. The final session was extremely hot, and everyone inside was forced to lie down to breathe the cooler air near the dirt of the floor. I tried 
to fully surrender, not only to the heat, but to the entire ceremony. When it was over, everyone was quiet and fatigued. I spent the rest of that very pleasant day drinking water and napping. And Natasha took a long walk out to the rim of the canyon with Howard's dog. This has been a long set of stories to describe a terrifying experience in a tent. It all started with someone telling me, you can't leave town or you'll die, and ended with the shamanic ceremony of death and rebirth. The next morning, Natasha and I said goodbye to Howard. We slept that night in the Valley of the Gods, a desolate and beautiful area in southeastern Utah. And that's another interesting story. On July 5th, 2010, Natasha left a comment below this post. She wrote, Ha! Huh, I have to admit I totally forgot about the scratch. And I remember I had the thought, we should take a picture of it, but then, within seconds, I forgot about it too. I am so grateful that we had the sweat lodge experience. I did it a few times before in Germany, but it is something entirely different with a Navajo man on his own land. And, of course, the little story of Valley of the Gods needs to be told by me, because Mike has no memory of it. Text added, February 2019 Natasha is right. There is a story that needs to be told. I didn't write about it at the time, and that surprises me, but there was so much happening that it just slipped through the cracks. After leaving the campground at Canyon de Chez, Natasha and I drove through some of the most remarkably desolate areas in the lower 48. We drove a lonely dirt road that passed through the Valley of the Gods, a big expanse of emptiness in the southeast corner of Utah. We parked the car in a dusty turnoff, then hiked a few miles off trail up a beautiful canyon. We found a big flat area of red sandstone just as the sun was setting. It would be perfect for sleeping. We didn't have a tent, and we were lying side by side in our sleeping bags, looking straight up. Our view was partially blocked by the narrow canyon walls, so all we had was a long stripe of the twilight sky. It was that magical moment when the heavens were fading from pink to purple and before the appearance of the first star. I thought this was the perfect moment to make a plea to the universe and ask for any helpful insights. Natasha agreed. I said, We are honored to be in such a beautiful spot, and we thank the universe. Then Natasha repeated the same phrase in German, and we did this, alternating back and forth. I continued, we are open and receptive to whatever you want to offer us, and we will use anything we learn here to make the world a better place. We offer our gratitude. Thank you. At the very second we finished our plea, a bright orange dot crossed the sky directly above us. It was only in sight for about 20 seconds, and we were both astonished. I blurted out, if you're a UFO, uh, wiggle around or something. Nothing happened. It continued in a perfectly straight line and then disappeared over the canyon wall to the south. After it was gone, we excitedly tried to figure out what we had seen. 
It was a bright circle of orange light, and seemed too fast to be a satellite. Nothing about it matched the blinking lights of a conventional aircraft. I know that the International Space Station can seem unusually bright at twilight, but honestly, what we saw was too big, too orange, and too fast. It felt like we saw a UFO. We talked for a long time, trying to explain it away, but we kept on returning to the fact that it appeared at the end of our spoken plea, at the exact moment we said thank you. I mean, even if it was the International Space Station, the timing was weird. The sky got dark, and the stars were spectacular. I slept fine, but Natasha told me something the next morning. She woke up in the middle of the night and sensed some sort of presence. It felt like somebody was standing just out of view from where we were lying. She said, It was near our heads and seemed tall. I was too afraid to lift my head and have a look, so I whispered, Mike, what is that above us? You said something, but I can't remember anything. I must have fallen asleep again. She told me all this as I was eating cold cereal in a cup. I had no memory of her waking me, and she asked what I had said. Without skipping a beat, I said, That's a star standing still. She said, That's right. That's what you said. I did not remember saying that during the night, and I didn't understand why I had said it so immediately right then. Eventually, we hiked out of the canyon and back to the car. An hour later, we were drinking hot coffee in Bluff, Utah. This is Mike, and I am chiming in at the end of, the, of this episode. I came forward with this stuff in a way that, that felt, how to say this, it felt like I was on a river and I was being dragged downstream and I had no choice. That's maybe a little bit traumatic, but that's how it feels in retrospect. I'm still in that river, and I'm still flowing downstream. I'm much, much more at peace now than what you just heard in these, in these audio readings of these chapters. This is an unusual sight, uh, Whitley's sight. I feel pretty strongly that I would be cautious to say the majority, but I would say a great percentage of the people listening to this show have had contact experiences. Perhaps they have gone through the same thing I've gone through. Obviously, everyone's experience in this kind of thing is going to be different, but I have certainly found solace in other people sharing their stories. And that has been a big reason why I have chosen to share mine. I am not the person I was 10 years ago. I have changed. And I hope it's been for the better. I certainly am much more at peace now than I was 10 years ago. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>